0: Calvary Bible Church, you are an answered prayer for my wife and myself. We uh, spent 46 years, 47 years in pastoral ministry, and the last 37 of them we spent in the same place, same church. And uh, when we were preparing to leave, we knew that the Lord was leading us to leave, but we also... Knew that it was going to be an enormous change, and we were very concerned that we follow the Lord. And we did. uh, Best we could figure out. And this is where He brought us. And one of the things we were most concerned about was the table that wouldn't stand up. (laughs) Is there a trick to this? You just can't touch it. That's it, huh? See, I've got heavier stuff on it than a couple of pieces of paper. The, uh, no, church, God used you in our lives from the first moment we walked through the doors, and I was just talking with one of our church family before the service, and she was saying, I love this church, and I echo that. We love this church. We love you guys. It's such a privilege to be part of what God's doing here in you all. Thank you. Are you helping me out, Pastor? Thank you. Well, you've recognized a broken-down old man, and I appreciate the help. Bill, okay for them to just stay there on the floor? Okay. You guys can see that I'm very sophisticated. Uh, That's why I fit here so well. Okay. In a few minutes, I'd like to ask you to read with me from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. And... um, while you're finding that, I want to add my amen to the pastors and to Michael's remarks about the Thanksgiving service event. You know, when Jesus was asked what is the greatest commandment of all, he said without hesitation, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy mind and all thy soul. And the second is like the first Love your neighbor as yourself. And so churches are under the mandate of God to love their neighborhood. Christians are under the mandate of God to love their neighborhood. And this is one of the most powerful sermons we will ever preach, is to express God's love to those around us in tangible ways. We won't have to say a word. We'll just be there with the food. And there will be people who will never forget. There will be little kids who will always remember when that church up there on the hill sent people around and made Thanksgiving Day for them. Don't take it lightly. It's a wonderful thing. We're going to love our neighborhood in Jesus' name. Okay, now in 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to read the entire chapter. If you'll just follow along, I'll read it aloud. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when, that, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up such childish ways. For now, we see as in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face. Now, I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Magnificent words, huh? Just heartwarming, inspiring, right? Now let's get real for just a moment. How'd that make you feel? Really and truly, how did it make you feel? On one part, maybe a little inspired. How many would say, yeah, I'm inspired by that kind of talk, yeah. And how many would say, guilty? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And maybe even worse, condemned. I've got to begin by just pointing out to you that the Bible is given to us to reveal our need for God, our need for a Savior, And to reveal the Savior that we need. The Old Testament's devoted to working like a light that shines on the hearts of all the readers. And says, look, this is what you're like in God's sight. You can't measure up. You can't do it. You're hopeless. You need a Savior. You need a sacrifice. You need someone to intervene for you. Anybody who reads the Old Testament and thinks, I can do that. I'll live up to that. You're going to fall in the same trap that the original hearers of it fell into. You're going to become snared in legalism and then discouragement and ultimately despair, and you'll move off into all kinds of false worship. Because it wasn't ever designed to tell people how they could get right with God. It was designed to show people how wrong they were with God and how utterly, desperately, we need God to make us right. The New Testament, just as the Old Testament reveals our need for for a Savior, the New Testament reveals the Savior we need. It's not written so that we will be able to follow it any better than we could the Old Testament, folks. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it, period. That's why we needed a Savior like Jesus. He did it all. And here's the deal. When we read about this magnificent love that's described here, it's not love that we conjure up. It's not love that we get better and better and and someday we're really loving that way. No. It's His love. It's Him loving through us. One of the views that the unbelieving world has of Christendom is this. Mild-mannered people listening to a mild-mannered man exhort them to be more mild-mannered. Now, I know that because, of course, it's just common knowledge, but also I grew up in a home where that was the view of Christianity. Mild-mannered people listening to a mild-mannered man exhorting them to be more mild-mannered. That is so far removed from genuine Christianity that it is Literally false. You see, what's really happening in Christendom is this. Ordinary people like us are being daily and continuously transformed by the indwelling power of the living God to be something they could never be without it. And we're continuously experiencing and walking in and living in the miraculous, life-changing, eternal life-giving Work of God. It's a good place for you to say amen if you believe that. So, we come to the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we realize, that's wonderful! I can't do it. Welcome to reality. God never intended that you could be able to do it, otherwise He wouldn't have bothered to send Jesus. Jesus. Telling us what it looks like isn't the same thing as being it, you know? Correct? And and so all that guilt and all that condemnation and all that shortfall that we feel like deep down inside when we hear these words and so many others of the New Testament, it's because we're reading it wrong. We need to understand this is what our Savior looks like. And this is how we know when He's controlling us. We act like that. We are that. It's no act. It's Him in us doing it. So that's, that's just kind of an off-topic thing. But I needed to get it out. You see, my friend long ago was right. When he first became a Christian, he thought, this is wonderful and it's so easy I can do this. A few months later, he came to the conclusion that it was really hard. Have you all ever moved past wonderful and easy to hard? Yes. Yes, sure. Well, then a few months later, matter of fact, a few years later, he said, I give up. This is impossible. I hope you've reached that point, not because You need to live in despair or discouragement or disillusionment about the faith. But because that's the point at which you deal with reality. And you say, I can't do this. But guess what? Jesus has done it. And he will continue to do it in you, through you, by his indwelling spirit. And that's the truth. It isn't easy. It's not even hard. It is impossible. The only one who could ever do it was Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. That's, That's the truth, folks. And so I'm here to talk to you about the love that Jesus, the love that Jesus is in us. And that love wins it wins over everything and anything ultimately and finally and supremely the love of Christ wins now we we celebrated yesterday afternoon at my house when Georgia won some friends in Florida weren't doing that but every christian has the option of celebrating that love continuously eternally wins and living in that every one of us can share that unbroken victory all the time. Love wins. Money doesn't win. Power doesn't win. Manipulation and control doesn't win. No. Even education and status and brilliance don't win. Love wins. In your home, love will win. In your relationship with your friends at school, love wins. In your work, love wins. In your business, love wins. In your marriage, love wins. This is the ultimate victory in every case. I want to invite you to look at it with me a little more closely, all right? I want to make... uh a few observations about this text before we actually uh, as pastor says, break it down. Don't you just love him? I mean absolutely, yeah, uh, the first observation is this: we've got slides with them, I think. Is there an observation there we go we We just hit the Go ahead and go to the the big idea. You know, I put these together, and then I don't use them. Uh, I just put them together because I know people have to have something better to look at. Uh, First observation, observation about this text is the original intent of this passage was not for marriage and Valentine's Day. You know, that's where this is generally looked at. But if you read the text in the context of the book, it fits between chapter 12 and chapter 13, or chapter 14... In 1 Corinthians. And those two chapters are all about how the Holy Spirit looks in the life of a believer and in the life of the church, how it's supposed to look. And it's being written to a church that is deeply troubled. The Corinthian church was a terrible mess. They were factionalism or factions, they were playing favorites, they were. actually proud of how liberal they were about the sin in their midst. They actually were. They were boasting about the fact that they were able to have these sinful practices that were going on take place, and they didn't condemn anybody. Sound like any part of the Church of Christ today? It does. You know, they had a terrible, terrible reputation in their community. The community saw them and thought hypocrites and worse. They, uh, they just were failing so badly. Now, they were still getting together, but Paul said that they were worse when they left being together than when they got there. Have you ever been worse when you left church than when you got there? Uh, that's not a good situation for the church. I think we can agree on that, right? We don't come together to make each other worse. To feel worse, to think worse, to do worse. But that's what was happening. Now then, interestingly enough, Corinth wasn't the only church that had trouble in history. Every church has some troubles. I'm really grateful for this church. Because y'all just don't know how good it is here. You live a little sheltered life. But the Lord is just so beautifully honored and glorified here, and it's a great experience. But how many of you have been in a church that wasn't like that? Come on, put your hands up. We're not going to be condemning anybody. We're just confessing here. Okay? Okay, and the First Baptist Church of Corinth had a terrible problem. Their deacon meetings were awful. Anybody ever been in an awful deacon meeting? Keep your hands down. (laughs) Their business meetings were atrocious. There are actually business meetings that take place in churches where they have to have armed policemen to maintain control. And I'm not lying. That's the truth. And Paul's writing to them and he's saying, if your church is a mess... If your life is a mess, if your relationships are a mess, here's the answer. He's not condemning them. He's not sending them to hell. He's saying, don't give up. There's a better way. As a matter of fact, if you look in the last verse of chapter 12, he says, and yet I will show you a better way. And then he starts talking about this magnificent love. This love that, by the way, is translated from a Greek word which... Greek writers never used to describe human relationships and human activity. It was a love that was so distinctly other and above and beyond humankind. They had words to use for human love. There was a word for the love between a man and a woman, a word for the love between brothers. And we have a city in the United States, at least one and maybe more, named Philadelphia based on Philo, the Greek word for brotherly love. But... That's not this word. This word is a word that describes an unselfish love. A love that acts for the benefit of others without thought of personal effect or gain. Utterly, continuously pouring out for the benefit of others. And the Greeks were right. Human beings can't do that. We might do it momentarily or spasmodically. But as Jesus said, no man has greater love than this. That a man lays down his life for his friends. That's a really rare thing. A really rare thing. And the Apostle Paul went on to say. God demonstrates his love for us. in that while we were yet sinners. Not his friends. His enemies. Sinners. That's what that word means among other things. Is that sinners are at enmity with God. That. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the ungodly. And later he said, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's that kind of love. It's that kind of love that's being described and talked about here. Back in the 60s and 70s when I first became a follower of Christ, there was a movement across the uh, nation that came to be known as the Jesus Movement. Some of you, old gray heads and gray beards, might remember something about that. But we were really caught up with a word called agape. That, that's this word. That's this word. And the reason we were so caught up with it, of course, is because it's such a beautiful thing. And also, that was the free love era. And this was the Christian... The God, the Savior's answer to the free love movement was agape, which was all about God's love, not ours. There were a bunch of us that had gotten absolutely full of the emptiness of the 60s without God, and we turned to Christ. So, that's the first observation. The second one is, now, I've, I want to encourage you not to... T- despair, I do have um, points like the pastor does, you know, those things that all sound alike and mean different things. There's a word for that, you know. Does anybody know what that word is? Alliteration, that's it, It, and that's kind of an automatopoeia in itself, isn't it? Because it sounds like it. it, sounds like what it means, alliteration. Not until the New Testament do we find this Greek word used in literature to respect people, with respect to people. So, hi, I got the second point. The third observation is this this passage is not an exhortation to do better. It's a description of what we can experience and share when we're surrendered to and depending upon the Lord Jesus. And I want to make just this final observation, and then we'll go to the text. This love is the love that Jesus spoke of when he looked at his disciples and he said, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. That's in John chapter 13, verse 33, 34. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. You go to church every Sunday. Not what he said. You tithe. Not what he said. You know more about the Bible than anybody else. Not what he said. You look good in your suit. That's not what he said. People compliment you on how well behaved your children are. Not what he said. That you have love one for another. It turns out the dis- and and this is probably the point that you need to take home with you if you don't get any others. The distinguishing, defining characteristic of Christendom is love for one another. That's it. Is that what we're known by in the world today, Christians? It's what we're supposed to be known by, isn't it? And the reality is that Francis Chan got it right in his little book, The Forgotten God. He was writing about the Holy Spirit. If you go to the last slide Uh, Once again, I put these together, and then I don't follow them, Uh, and it just drives the sound booth crazy, and I, you know, the sound booth always makes me look a lot better than I am, Uh, but if you could move to the last slide, that would be terrific, brother. I'm going to have to move down here. I've got it on my notes, but I'd have to hunt through them, too. The world is not moved by love or actions that are human creation. Okay. Okay. Human creation, got it? Distinction here. We're being nice, mild-mannered, loving people. The church is not empowered to live differently from any other gathering of people without what? The Holy Spirit. The The evidence that their lives are supernatural. This is a big, exciting life we've got going on, folks. Folks. This is an absolutely miraculous thing that God does in people's lives when they surrender themselves in faith to Christ. He changes us, and he enables us to be and do what we are not able to do and be otherwise. And you ought to be able, as a believer, to look back across your life and see that having happened, and see it continuing to happen. It's not easy, it's not fun, but it is exciting. It is exciting. The church cannot help but be different, and the world cannot help but notice. So I want to encourage you this morning. If you've not already realized that Christianity is not about being good, but about being yielded to the one who is good, so that he lives through you, this is the time to realize that and lay hold of that, and claim it, and participate in it. And we'll get to more of that in just a few moments. But now I do want to call your attention to three quick bullet-like points about this text. The first is this. Ha-ha. I didn't fool him. I tried. We see in verses 1 through 4 or actually one through three, the empty futility of religious activity without love. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, both the glossolalia of the New Testament believer and also that much higher, more exalted language that none of us know, the tongues of angels. And I have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Have you ever heard a clanging cymbal? You're in for a treat. Oh, that doesn't work very well. And this, unfortunately, doesn't have the little deals on it to be able to slam them together very well. Darn. I thought, sure, I could give you an object lesson. But listen, the most magnificent words in the world, the greatest teaching you can do, the most helpful instruction you can offer, if it's not with love, if it's not motivated by the love of Christ, if it's not filled with the love of Christ, it's like a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong according to the Bible. That means it's utterly futile. It's irritating. i got to tell you, clanging cymbals are irritating. And they are meaningless, irritating and meaningless without the love. The old adage is, they won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yes. He goes on and he says, not only my speech, and and this is really important for the church of Corinth because they were all hung up on tongues. They had exalted tongues to the the premier place and the highest rank, and also prophecy. They were really big about that. And he goes on and he says, And if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. He's just crushing their idols by pointing this out to them. We may speak in tongues. We may have great understanding and great knowledge. We may have tremendous faith and and be able to do miracles. But if it is sans love, it's empty and futile, meaningless, and essentially just irritating. Because it leads to misunderstanding, to self-exaltation, to getting our eyes on people, and so forth and so on. Even if I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love. I gain nothing. Years ago, there was a a very wealthy man who had lived his entire life as a secular humanist. But as he was approaching the end of his life, he gave somewhere upwards of $3 billion to Christian causes. Somebody asked him if he was trying to buy his way into heaven. He said, well, it can't hurt. And sometimes that's the way we look at giving. God doesn't look at it that way. Bulletin, God doesn't need $3 billion. God doesn't need to win the lottery. If money was the issue, God would have already fixed it. He has it all. All the wealth is his. No. Without love, such giving is empty and void. Doesn't gain anything for us. And he goes on then in church, chapter 13, verse 4, and he offers this. Next slide, please. He describes the exquisite beauty of love. Love is patient and kind. Now, there are 15 characteristics of love described here, and I want to relieve you that I'm not going to spend the next hour and a half make a comment on each one. But the word patient is an interesting word. It's used only, the word that's translated patience, is used only with respect to people, not material objects. And every mechanic in the world is glad to know that. Patience with people, it has to do with in the vernacular, cutting them a break. We all are dealing with stuff that other people don't know about. You won't ever meet anybody who doesn't need encouragement. Every time you look into somebody's eyes, you're looking into the eyes of somebody who needs to be encouraged. Always. You won't ever look into the eyes of somebody who's not dealing with some private stuff that you don't know. That may show up, In the outward way, they live their lives, and you may find yourself irritated by it. That's why patience is so critical, that we do that of giving people a break, putting up with them, not putting them down. Now, I know that you know that I never would do that. I've never been impatient, harsh, unkind, critical, negative, envious, or boastful. But I do lie a lot. (laughs) Of course we're that way. And every time we're that way, you know what that tells me when I look at my life and I see that I'm that way? Jesus is not running the show. I am not walking in his control. Good old Larry's taken over. And that's what it tells you about yourself, too. So every now and then just do a little life check and say, is what I'm being revealing Jesus or my old self? I never put a bumper sticker on my car that said, honk if you love Jesus, or even tithe if you love Jesus, any fool can honk. Did you get that? <laughs> You've got to let me know. Sometimes it's really lonely up here. <laughs> I never put a bumper sticker on there that identified myself as a Christian. You know why? I wasn't afraid of damaging the paint. I was afraid of damaging the name because I know that there are times when my behavior doesn't match my profession. Anybody else feel that way? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the truth. Now, the wonderful, the wonderful truth is it really does match my profession because my profession is I'm a sinner. My profession is that I am lost and undone except for Jesus. And that he, if there's good in me, and and sometimes there is, it's him, not me. But I'm not consistent enough to advertise it on the back of my car. It goes ahead and talks about love. And there are some things I want to point out about this exquisite beauty of love that um, should be taken note of. He says... It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, to the Corinthian church, as they read that, they had to be thinking about this incestuous relationship that they were condoning and applauding themselves for being so liberal in accepting, taking place in their own midst, and says, real love doesn't rejoice at that. It rejoices at the truth. Fellow Christians, this is where I stop being amusing and probably be offensive. I don't mean to be, but I know that it's possible. There are great and grievous sins in our society today. Sins that I'm not defining, the Bible defines. It is critical that we not confuse the biblical love with a somehow humanistic love. The humanistic love says, well, that's okay. You know, we can't judge people. The biblical love says, this is the truth. It's not a glory to God for us to embrace the ungodliness. We love all people. Nobody's a bigger sinner than I am. Nobody's a bigger sinner than you are. But I don't ask you to condone or embrace my sin as if it were righteousness. We've got to stand here, folks, because it's love. It's love defined by God, not by people. And it's love that says, get thee behind me, Satan, when he looks at Peter. It's love that looks into the face of Peter and says, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows three times. It's love that looks into the face of Peter and says, do you really love me after all that you've done and all that you've said? It's the truth. And that's how we love people best, is by loving them with the truth. He goes on with this exquisite beauty of love, and he says, love bears all things. That means it puts up with everything. Love never falls in front of and falls under mistreatment, obnoxiousness, or just petty irritation. It bears all things. Love believes all things. Now, that's not talking about being gullible as believers. That's talking about living by faith and looking through the lens of faith in God and in His Word to see all that happens so that we move by faith. It goes ahead and says, not only does it believe all things, but it hopes all things. Here's the way it works. When we believe God's word, then we have an unshakable and certain hope that it's going to happen that way. That God's faithful to his word. He keeps his promises. He always, he never, ever doesn't keep his promises. He always keeps them. So we believe God when he says that we know that all things work together for good according to God's purposes. To those who are the called. That doesn't mean everything's going to work out great for me. It means that God's going to work everything together for His glory in my life. And so I can live with the bad things and the difficult things and the hard things and the dark places knowing that. I can also do it because of the song that um, we sang earlier when we talked about when we're in the dark. He's with us. He doesn't leave us. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That means he's with you all the time. In the most difficult times, in the most heartbreaking times, in the times you don't understand and it doesn't make any sense and you're mad and heartbroken and can't really carry on, he's still there. And you can live in that hope and that confidence. And so we live in hope regardless of what happens. Because we know what? Love wins. God never fails. Love always wins. Always wins. We don't ever come to the battlefield and say, oh, I hope God wins today. We come to the battlefield with the assurance that God has won. His victory is secure. We, oh, that's beautiful. Bye, Ryan. Oh, man. This is the first time I've been here that he's been here, and I want to get to know him better. Yeah. Love wins. It wins. It never fails. He goes on and says, love never ends. In the King James Version it says it never fails. And that's really the heart and soul of the idea of winning. It's never defeated. It never wears out. It never gets tired. It's never broken. Love always wins. Love always wins. I want to encourage you. Bring yourself Filled with his love to the next step of your life. Wherever it is and whatever it is continuously. Bring yourself filled with his love to the next thing. It always wins. It always is victorious. It never fails. It never wears out. It never breaks down. And that's why the final point is. The endless existence of love. It never goes away. Tongues, prophecies, knowledge, all that stuff that the Corinthians were making such a big deal about, it's not eternal. It has a divine place, but it's not eternal. Love is. Love lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts. Faith, hope, love, the greatest of these is love. He speaks to the church at Corinth about our present condition. He says, we're seeing the Lord. We're seeing His truth. We're seeing His will. We're seeing His power. But we're seeing it as if we were looking into a mirror, and it's cloudy. It's not clear. It's not pristine. This was especially meaningful to the city of Corinth because that place was known for building mirrors. That was the city that manufactured mirrors and they didn't manufacture them with glass like it's done now or like it was back when I knew what mirrors were. I don't have any idea what technology is doing to mirrors today. I'm always a little frightened to say now because it now changes every month. The uh, They used shiny metal, highly polished metal for mirrors. You can imagine how eloquent this was to those Corinthians in terms of helping them understand that what they thought was such a big deal was no better than what they were seeing in their Corinthian-made mirrors was not perfect. And he, he goes ahead and he talks about when that which is perfect has come. Now, Paul was looking for Jesus. Every Christian was living if they were living in doctrinal correctness, they were living in the anticipation of the return of Jesus. And he said, when that happens, everything but faith, love, and hope is going to be gone. We'll see him as face to face. In another place, John says that we will see him and we will be like him because we see him. Absolutely like him. Hmm. So there is the exquisite beauty of love and there is the endless existence of love. God's love. Oh boy. I hope you haven't looked at your watch yet. I saw a few of you shaking them really hard. I do want to tie all this up as quickly as possible. Don't blame me. I'm used to working with a big desk. (laughs) Pretty old school. Here's the deal. We see this love displayed in the life of Jesus, don't we? We see it displayed in him. From his emptying himself of the divine and coming to Birth as an infant born in a stable and laid in a feed trough, to his life of difficulty and hardship, to his empowering, change life-changing work in the lives of the disciples that he called to himself, to his prayer in Gethsemane, where he Showed us what it means to surrender yourself and trust God. In the face of a crucifixion. In the face of the agonies of the judgment of sin. In the face of the enormity of the impossibility of the one who was righteous and without sin becoming sin. He became sin for you and me. In the face of his death on the cross. We see this sacrificial non-self-serving kind of love in His resurrection from the grave and, and instead of judging and condemning all who had a part in His death, offering life everlasting and forgiveness. The love of God shines like a beacon through the cosmos from the cross of Christ, constantly beaming this truth You are loved. You're loved like this. Mom, you're loved this kind of love. Dad, you're loved this kind of love. Kids, you're loved with this kind of love. The God of the universe who knows you and intimately understands everything you're dealing with, loves you this way. And whatever else is going on, you have that as rock-solid truth. Unbeliever, you're loved this way. You're here this morning and you say, I, I've never really made any kind of commitment to Jesus. And I have no real sense that my sins have been forgiven. And I, I know I need that. But I feel so unworthy. You're in the right place. You're loved this way. Sinning Christian, you're loved this way. We're all loved this way. Can I get an amen? amen. We're loved this way. And it's forever. It never ends. And it can flow through us. So I, I challenge you and encourage you, if you've never received it, receive it today. By faith, trusting Christ as your Savior. Presenting yourself before Him and saying, God, I need you. I need Jesus as my Savior to forgive my sin and to change me. I want to be, but I can't be without you what you want me to be. He'll do that. And then for the rest of your life, day by day, month by month, week by week, and sometimes second by second, it's a continuation of surrendering to him. And it may be that today you've been carrying around a load of guilt as a believer, a load of condemnation as a believer, and you need to just receive his love again and let it settle on your heart and mind. He loves you this way, the way we've just been reading about. That's the love Jesus has for you. And then we need to release it because it also shows us not only the love He has for us, it shows us the love He wants to flow through us to others. And you release it by surrendering yourself to Him. Letting Him have the wheel of your life. Letting Him call the shots. Letting Him be the boss. Yielding to Him. And you know what? You don't have to do anything else except what comes supernaturally naturally. Because He will do it through you. He really will. And that's when it's real. That's when being a Christian is like breathing. It's not an effort to be better, do better, not do bad. It's just simply living in the power that His love gives you when you yield yourself to Him. But it's a scary thing, isn't it, to to lay down your life. But Jesus made it pretty clear. Nobody gets the resurrection life without dying. And the resurrection life comes to us by faith in his death and by faith joining that death. And that resurrection life comes by the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus sends into our lives when we trust him and pray for him to forgive us of our sins. Now, that's a lot different than a bunch of mild-mannered people listening to a mild-mannered man saying, be more mild-mannered, isn't it? But that's the real gospel. That's the real gospel. He loves you. And he longs to have us know that love working in our lives. Not only releasing us and freeing us. But also reaching out to and touching and ministering to those around us who so desperately need it. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for being so kind. Uh, I apologize for overshooting the mark on time. I'd really intended to preach for another 40 minutes. (laughs) Now you know why Pastor only lets me preach once every couple of years. Uh, He figures one will cover it all. And I don't blame him.